This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility and listeners like you. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the last show in our series on hidden emotions. We've been airing stories and conversations about loneliness, guilt, jealousy, and humiliation. We want to wrap up this series by making some connections between these four emotions and exploring why we hide them. If you haven't heard any of the prior shows about these hidden emotions, I invite you to go back and listen to them. I think you'll notice what I noticed, which is that these feelings almost never occur in isolation. In almost every story, the teller acknowledges the feeling of either shame or humiliation. People telling stories of guilt spoke of the humiliation when they got caught. People telling stories of jealousy spoke of the shame of feeling like they were nothing when they compared themselves to someone else. And many spoke of their shame that they even felt jealous or lonely to begin with, as if it revealed some kind of deficiency in them. So it seemed worth taking a moment to explore the nature of shame and humiliation, how they're the same and how they're different. I went back and listened to an interview I did in 2010 with Dr. Aaron Lazar, the now-retired dean of the University of Massachusetts Medical School, a psychiatrist and the author of the book On Apology. He gives a wonderful description of four self-conscious emotions and helps to explain the differences. He also describes the stages we go through when we feel humiliated. I'm going to play you the highlights from that interview that focus on what he calls the four signal emotions. I apologize for the sound quality. This was back before I had a producer. I hope you'll find it's worth it. This is my conversation with Dr. Aaron Lazar. You've spoken about there being four uh, self-conscious emotions, and I think it might be worth us actually taking some time to go through each one and how they're different. There are four emotions that are called the emotions of self-assessment, that an emotion you feel which reflects on who you are, and one of them one of the four is shame, and shame, uh, the word shame comes from schema, to cover. So to, to be shamed is to be uncovered uh, from, from the original Latin or Greek. So you're shamed, you're uncovered, and uh, we'll talk about the positive and negative of each one. Humiliation is actually a more painful emotion because it comes from the humus, the dirt. It means to have your, pay, your face pushed into the ground and to be humiliated In general, it means that it's an interpersonal event. Someone does it to you, it feels unfair, and you're lowered, and it's public. And with with shame, the the reaction to shame is to hide. By the way, the word skin comes from shame, too. The skin covers. But humiliation uh, generates anger and rage. And a lot of people who commit murders or who are violent have just been humiliated. Uh, so that's that's a really a very serious emotion and uh, uh, one that I really I pay a lot of attention to because uh, uh, it, it's, I'll, I'll talk more about that syndrome because it's so powerful. Uh, another one is embarrassment, which is the least of the of the ones the least serious. But to be embarrassed is to lose your composure. So when you're embarrassed, you tend to laugh it off or you tell your friend, which is a healthy way to deal with it. With humiliation, you just uh, 
can't get it off your mind. It's driving you crazy. It just you perseverate with it, and to to shame you hide. And then guilt is again a more quiet one. You, how could I have done something so terrible? And that's usually a a private emotion too. So these are called signal emotions, which is which is interesting because it means that, and and this this is the way I make good use of it. They signal that you have a problem. And so if you're embarrassed, what you ought to do is say, I've lost composure. How do I gain my composure instead of doing something really stupid? Uh, or to be humiliated, what you should do is nothing because your judgment is so bad. For those of you who have been humiliated, anyone who has not been, I'm afraid to say that you're a liar. Because we, <laughs> Either that or they repressed it because it's such a horrible experience. It's horrible. We, and we, people don't even like to use the word humiliation. When I, when I go walking uh, and do my exercises and some of the, my neighbors say, what are you writing about? I say, I'm writing a book about humiliation. And I see them in two weeks and they say, how's your book on humility? Right. <laughs> It's not on humility. They can't imagine that a quiet, mild-mannered fellow like myself would write a book about such awful things. Yes. Humiliation is the cause of wars. In fact, um, people century about you know, uh, five, fifth century B.C. Someone who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian Wars said that the three causes of war are greed. Fear and loss of honor. Loss of honor is what humiliation is all about. Yes, I mean, I remember being told in high school that World War II, in some ways, was the result of Germany being humiliated after World War One. That's that's common historical knowledge that the Versailles Treaty was so cruel that they had to get even, and so Hitler rose to power because Hitler was a humiliated person, and now he was going to lead and, and, and get re- redeemed by it. Yeah, yeah. It's humiliation is a dangerous, dangerous emotion, and you should never humiliate someone. And when you do and you can't help it, uh, you can uh, a good apology can, can help it. And if it happens to yourself, as I said, don't do anything because you're going to do something really dumb. If you write a letter, don't, don't, <laughs> don't send it. it. Yes, well, I actually want to slow down because you have a really great... In your book on apology, you write about kind of the sequence of events that tends to happen to a person when they feel humiliated. And it it seems really worth walking through that. You talk in the beginning about being absolutely blindsided. And I wondered if you could just sort of talk us through the process. Yeah. When you're humiliated, the first thing that happens is you're kind of numb. You're kind of not sure what's going on. And then and the other thing, and this happens to almost everybody, you start to perseverate that if you can't get it off your mind. It kind of, somebody said it's like they're living in my mind rent-free. Mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember my way of relating to that is I know I've been humiliated if I keep rehearsing better and better comebacks in my yes. mind, like, oh, I wish I'd said that, or, and I keep refining that comeback to make it even more counter-humiliating. <laughs> well, well, someone, someone very important in, in the organization I was in humiliated me and everybody else, and he would uh, say things like, "Oh, psychiatry! I don't believe in psychiatry," and he, he would do that in front of many people. And here I was in charge of the department, and and then I realized that one of the things that, that he does is he catches me off guard. See, so there are some people, we each have a relative or a friend who's what I call a chronic humiliator. They're always putting you down. And the only way to to undo it is to have the answer ready in advance. Ah. Because you're not ready. 
So here's this guy who says he doesn't believe in this in this field that you've devoted your life to. That's right. What right. what answer did you have in, in advance for oh, the next Oh, so time? what I did, this was this is one of the high points of my career. <laughs> I want to hear it. So I walked into his office and there were about 20 other people there and he says, "Oh, here comes my psychiatrist. I don't believe in and and I said, "Dr. Smith, it's not his name. Dr. Smith." And I very kindly without being rattled, I said, "How long have you felt this way?" <laughs> he, he turned red. He totally, totally unraveled, and he he says, "What do you want me to do? Lie down?" I said, "You can lie anywhere you want." Uh, and he never did it again. I see. So that was your effective way of getting to stop. Yeah. No, you don't want to overdo it. If I said, you know, you blank, 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 with all kind of curse words, it would look like I was out of control. But uh, but if you keep your cool, you can have something measured in, in advance. Yeah, that's very helpful. So the first thing is you feel blindsided. Right. The second thing is you notice yourself perseverating and sort of rehearsing comebacks and just going over and over right. it in your mind. And then, then you start thinking about revenge. Yeah. And then you start, you're, you're so preoccupied that you lose your keys or you, you take the wrong turn on the highway because your mind, your mind is struggling to keep yourself sane, so to speak, you know, and... Uh, yeah. And then it goes away, but it doesn't go away. It it, it becomes a, a a grudge, a revenge, almost like waiting for your chance to get even. So that takes a lot of energy out of you. Yeah. So you've said, you know, be careful, don't act because you're going to do something stupid. Meaning, if you act out of that righteous rage, yeah. you will ultimately regret it. Yeah. If you send, you write a letter and send it off about two days, you'll say, "Boy, that's brilliant! It's a brilliant letter." And then a few <laughs> right. days later. You say, oh, my God, what have I done? I wish I hadn't sent that. Yes, but you've also said that apology is finally the only way to heal a humiliation. Well, the apology on the part of the person who humiliated you. Yes, but what if that's not forthcoming? Because, of course, it often isn't. If it's not forthcoming, you have to uh, um, <laughs> you kind of swallow it and don't do anything stupid. But I found in my own self, if somebody said, You'll never do that. It can't work. That motivates me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them. So they could be constructive things, too. So a lot of constructive things I did in my professional career was sort of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them that I could really uh, pull, pull this off. And, uh, I, I see. Had, so you I, channeled it. You sort of channeled it into fuel for yourself. That's right. I, there's a fascinating story that I recently had. There was somebody, a very famous psychiatrist, uh, who was coming to visit our school for three days, but he wouldn't come unless he would have an hour appointment with me. And I knew who he was, and and the reason that he wanted to speak with me is because I humiliated him in 1964. Mm-hmm. This this just happened, and and now 64. Yeah. God knows how many 46 years later. years later. Yes. He came back and he said, I want to talk to you. He says, do you remember what you did now? What I did, I had to do. I had to take away a patient that he was seeing because he wasn't handling the patient well. But I didn't realize how devastating it was. So I wasn't, I was kind when I said it, but I didn't do enough follow-up. And he, he he's telling me about this and he says, do you remember that? I said, I remember all of it. And then he said, uh, I decided that someday... I was going to become famous, and I was going to come back and show you, and here I am. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And he gave me a gift. He had written a book recently, and he, he brought a book, and he said, to my best teacher. <laughs> and so in that moment, did you apologize to him? 
I apologize by saying, you know, I, what I did was the right thing, and I'm glad that you felt that I did it delicately, but I, I didn't understand how much it would hurt and how long it would last and that I should have been in ongoing dialogue with you, and I've learned that since, and so that was the apology. Mm. That's a great story because part of what it shows is that when you feel humiliated, it's very hard to let go of it. You hold on to it for decades. Yeah, it, it, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is the synonyms for humiliation. Now, if you ask me what's a common synonym for shame, I would say, oh, I had egg on my face. Well, that's not a terrible thing, you know. But have a humiliation. I was thrown under a bus or I was nailed to the cross. Uh, I was decimated. I was stabbed in the back. I was kicked in the groin. I have a hundred of these things I collect collected a hundred synonyms and they're all destructive and it shows how destructive so it's it's murder not murder of your body but murder of yourself and that's why you think about it and you're struggling with it because it's an attack on your very soul so don't humiliate people and when you are humiliated uh, realize that you're not dead and that you really can can make a comeback on it mm. but it's an extraordinary extraordinary emotion that people people don't like to even even talk about one of the ways to help a friend recover from humiliation or shame is to join them to let them know that they're not alone and to reveal something vulnerable about yourself in my therapy office, I can't do this, of course, because the time is theirs and the focus is on my patient and their experience. But on the radio, it feels important not to ask my guests to make themselves vulnerable without being willing to do the same myself. The idea of Safe Space Radio is that when one person has the courage to name something hidden, it opens a door that makes it easier for other people to start talking about the things that they are hiding, so that gradually we begin to make the culture safer for everyone. So I've decided to share a story of my own, one that combines elements of all four of these hidden emotions. It's a story about guilt, humiliation, loneliness, and jealousy. As we said earlier, when there's one of these emotions, there's a good chance there's at least one more. Here's my story. When I was seven years old, my school used to sponsor a child in a third world country. So every Wednesday morning in an all school meeting, we used to pass around like a collection plate and all the kids would put in their pennies and their dimes to raise money for this child. In this case, it was an orphan in Indonesia. And we would be sending her, you know, money once a month for her school books, something like that. So one Wednesday afternoon, the teacher asked me to go down to the front door of the school and she said that there would be an envelope with the money in it from the collection, and she wanted me to go get that for her. So I go running down to the front door, and sure enough, there's this envelope sitting there right by this big glass door, and it has $1.81 clearly marked. It seemed like the most amount of money I'd ever seen in one place in my life. And I also thought, wow, this is right by the front door. Like, any robber could have come by here and taken that money. In fact, I was almost surprised that hadn't happened. So I thought, you know, I could take this money. I could, you know, tear up and hide the envelope and put the money in my ski jacket pocket and no one would ever know. It would be the perfect crime. 
So that's what I did. I put the money in my ski jacket pocket, zipped it up, put it back in my locker, tore up that envelope and flushed it down the toilet as fast as I could so they wouldn't think I was gone for too long and went back up to gym class and told the teacher that I had looked everywhere and I couldn't find it. So three o'clock, it's time to go home and everyone's getting on their jackets and getting ready to go out and the teacher pulls me aside. She's like, Anne, I want to talk to you for a minute. And maybe only then did it slowly dawn on me like, oh yeah, I took that money. I'd kind of forgotten. So she pulls me into the staff room. I'd never been inside the staff room, of course. And there is my kindergarten teacher, my first grade teacher, my second grade teacher, and the school nurse. And they're all sitting there and they make me stand kind of with my back to the wall in front of them. And they told me that they knew I had stolen the money, that um, they were completely disappointed in me. And I started to cry. I felt so totally exposed and on the spot. I felt humiliated I, and I denied it. I was like, no, I didn't do it. And they were like, we know you did it. We found a dollar and 81 cents exactly in your ski jacket pocket. And you plugged up the toilet with all the little pieces of the envelope. And even when faced with this overwhelming evidence, I, I just could not confess to it. I felt so humiliated. I was just crying and denying it. So they called my mother and she came and picked me up. And that night, my parents sat me down on the end of their bed and they were like, you know, tomorrow you need to go back to school and you need to confess. You need to go to your teachers and say, yes, I did it. And sitting on the end of their bed, I think I had every intention of doing that. But come the next day, I could not face them. I could not. I think I was so like shaking in my whole body at the thought of facing them again. So I never confessed. I never did it. And my mother, I think she must have assumed that I did. She never checked with me, never asked me once, which in some ways almost made it worse because I was like creeping around for the next several days, like waiting to be caught that I had never confessed, but I was never caught. And it left me with this feeling of no one's bringing this up again. No one's talking about it anymore. And I was carrying this horrible guilt that I had stolen money to begin with, that I had stolen it from a poor orphan in a third world country, that I had lied about it to my teachers, and that I had acted as if I had gone back to confess when I never had. I grew up in a family that used to go to church every Sunday and part of the communion service, I grew up Anglican in Canada, that every week, Sunday after Sunday, you say the same prayer before communion, which is essentially you confess, you know, all the bad things you've done that week and you promise to make them right or to never do them again. So week after week, I would, I would start to make that prayer and then I would kind of stop halfway through because... I knew that I hadn't made it right, and I knew that I wasn't going to. I, I couldn't. I could not face going back to them. So week after week, I did not let myself go up for communion. Or I'd sort of like walk up, but then kind of turn around at the top of the church where my parents couldn't see me and come back so they wouldn't wonder about why. And so it pained me week after week. I just felt like I'm not worthy. There was this prayer that the beginning words of that prayer were, Lord, I am not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And I felt like that was true. 
So several years later, I'm 19 years old. I've been away from home for a year and I come back in the spring and go to church with my family. And all of it comes back to me at that confessional prayer. And I decide right there and then, I cannot live with this anymore. I'm going back to that school, finally, and confessing. So I call the school and arrange a meeting, and to my amazement, all my same teachers are still there, Mrs. Allen, Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Finley, and the school nurse, Miss Barrett. And we sit down, and I basically say, you know, yes, when I was in second grade, I stole the school collection that was supposed to go to that orphan in Indonesia, and I lied to you about it, and I never came back and confessed, and I'm so sorry that I did that. And I kind of look up, and they just, they start laughing. They're like, Anne, I can't believe that you've carried this all this time. Like, we've none of us remember. Like, oh, my gosh, don't worry. How are you? Tell us what's going on in your life. Like, they just moved on right away. And I sat there just sort of bewildered by how completely anticlimactic it was. It was really disappointing. I, they didn't get, I think, how much I'd suffered with the guilt of it. So I left that meeting pretty disappointed. I mean, I did feel some relief, like I'd finally done the right thing. But I was surprised by how little a difference it actually seemed to make. And I didn't have a name for why that was, but years later I realized it's because I was still carrying the shame of it. That shame for feeling like I was the kind of person who would steal money and steal it from an orphan. And that kind of lingered for a long time. I, I didn't really tell this story to anybody until one day I was in a long car drive with my friend and I talked to her about it. And she was in training to become an analyst. And she said, well, Anne, you know what Donald Winnicott says about stealing, don't you? And I was like, uh, no. Winnicott was a pediatrician who became an analyst. And he said that stealing in a child is a sign of hope. It means that a child has lost their mother and feels entitled to have her back. And I was like, what? I mean, it was really, it kind of blew my mind to imagine that stealing had some kind of like other psychological meaning than I was just a bad person. And as I sat with that kind of novel idea, I suddenly remembered that in fact, right before I stole that money, my beloved live-in nanny, Miss Hale, who had lived with my family for years, had left our family. And it dawned on me like, is it possible that I stole that money in relation to losing her? Like. It really took me a while to get my mind wrapped around that. And as I did, I suddenly understood that actually stealing that money was the perfect crime. But just in a way that I hadn't even been aware of, which is that I wanted what that orphan had. What she had that I didn't have was the acknowledgement and recognition of my entire school for her loss. Every Wednesday, when we reached into our little coin purses, we were basically saying, I know you've suffered this loss. I know that you're struggling. I'm, I want to help you. In a way that no one in my school or my family was acknowledging that the loss of Miss Hale was really a big deal. And that taking that money was actually a form of communication. It was actually my attempt, however hard to understand, of saying, I need this acknowledgement. I've lost something incredibly precious. 
And when I finally got that, I felt so much tenderness for that seven-year-old kid. She had been so lonely for the loss of this mother figure and so jealous of what that orphan had that she wanted for herself. One last thing I want to add. Just about a year ago, I was given a handout for a presentation for mental health providers. Kind of this primer on what we should know about working with Muslim patients. And somewhere in that handout was a list of the unforgivable sins in Islam. I think there were maybe like five of them. Number two on the list was stealing from an orphan. No wonder I was so tortured by this. that story because it captures for me the difference between guilt and shame and how different the remedies are for each. The way to resolve guilt is to go back and apologize and offer to make it right. I finally did that and it was a relief but I was surprised that it really didn't take care of it. This experience taught me about the power of shame and that it needed an entirely different solution but it's one that can be hard to find. The remedy for shame is compassion, which you can get by sharing your story with someone, hearing that you're not a terrible person, you're not alone. But when you feel ashamed, telling someone is the last thing you want to do. That's the problem. That's why shame is such a difficult thing to overcome. It involves risk. The risk of coming forward and daring to share your story in a world that's often judgmental. I want to thank each of my guests on this series who did have the courage to come forward, to dare to tell something they'd often hidden for years, even decades. If you have a hidden story and one that you would like to tell for the sake of helping others who also struggle with the same issue, let me know. My email is dranne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. I'd love to hear from you. Next week, we'll be airing a follow-up conversation about LGBTQ teens in Maine. Last year, we spent nine weeks talking with LGBTQ high schoolers, a parent, a teacher, and inaugural poet Richard Blanco about what it's like to be queer in Maine. We learned about bullying, about rejection by parents, teachers, and friends, and about the risk of suicide and self-harm. Next week, we'll be talking with Canadian researcher Elizabeth Sawick about surprising new findings that show how making schools safer for LGBTQ kids makes them safer for everybody. If you like this show and would like to hear the earlier series we did on LGBTQ teens in Maine, or the stories we did in this series on guilt, humiliation, loneliness, and jealousy, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please leave a comment and subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next, Speak Freely. <laughs>